write strongly worded letters to unpopular foreign leaders, look good on camera, end all hunger, crime, abuse, war, disease, disasters, sadness, depression, oppression, repression, suppression, transgression, obsession, expression, impression, regression, and digression by signing pieces of paper that express my disapproval of such things. And invest in an American flag pin to be worn prominently on my stylish jackets. It's time to work together to take the country back from us and return it to ourselves. It's time to turn this country around and drive it into opposing traffic. It's time to take a chance on the Chancellor. insatiable appetite for all things in life, who scream at nothing and everything at the same time, who dance till sunup, who cause the sun to set again with irreverent bow, who rival the moon with gravitational force, who leave rooms feeling empty and earthquake struck, who don't give a fuck, who make, who do, who dream out loud and laugh like maniacs, who draw shock and awe on faces graced with watching, who create from the soul of an orgasm, who swagger even alone in the shower, who fight with passion and love with passion and our passion who catapult over cliffs in the name of revolution who would rather die than fall in line to conform who constantly challenge the norm who greet each and every day as if just born i say to you i know your greatness the way a suicide jumper knows weightless just before the impact and in fact i know it best when i say to you i love you are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts are you
Okay, well, it is what it is. Um, I'm having trouble here. This is Labor and Love Radio, and it's December the 18th. What I was playing there, or what I was trying to play for you, was uh, Vicente Fernandez, a giant among world entertainers. <clears throat> died this last last week after a long illness. He was, uh, well, I mean, how could you say? He was born in 1940. He sold over 50 million copies worldwide making him one of the best-selling artists of all time. In 2016, he retired from performing live, although he continued to record and publish music. Uh, the problem is I can't... doesn't seem like I'm having success here playing it through my computer, but we'll see about that. So yeah, Vicente Fernandez, and he was singing with Tony Bennett. Tony Bennett went around um, a few years ago and recorded duets with different people like Vicente Fernandez and uh, Amy Winehouse, B.B. Um, King, other people like that. Uh, sort of a uh, an exclamation point on his uh, career as a singer. Okay, so it's Labor and Love. Looks like without our, we're without our music. But let's try one, okay? Okay, well, it's not coming through. Play some Miles Davis from Evil.
That was a little cut from Miles Davis, his album uh, Mean. And what we're supposed to be hearing right now is Tupac with California Love. And it ain't happening. This is Labor and Love, by the way. If it's Saturday and it's 10 a.m., This must be Mutiny Radio, and the show must be Labor and Love. You're all in one labor connection. Labor magazine, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table where you work, you're on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Well, let's see what we got planned. It's uh, problematic whether we're going to be able to do all this, but let's try. Striking Kellogg's workers win a tentative contract. L.A. cake factory workers are six weeks into their strike. This is democracy now. Labor history in two. Home care workers protest 24-hour workday in New York City, and we've got our local... Local paper here of the community, El Tecolote, talking about that as well in San Francisco. Um, We've got Radio Labor. Labor in the Day for Human Rights. Teachers say students are stressed and fragile while district pushes standardized tests. 2021 Year in Review from Labor Notes. Some some music by Count Basie. 
why we got two of them, but anyway. We're going to hear from Francesca Fiorentini. The rich want to keep you dumb. Okay, we already listened to Vicente Fernandez. A little more about him. When he was six, he was born in Jalisco. When he titan, el alto of Jalisco. So, of course, this means that Jalisco is like the Texas. People say it's like the Texas of Mexico. So from the very beginning, his career was stamped with rancheras. He was going to sing cowboy songs. But in Mexico, it's a whole different, a whole different thing. Cowboy songs here are uh, laid back. Uh, in Mexico, there's a great deal of passion. You know, even the hippest people in Mexico love their rancheras. At the age of eight, he was given a guitar. When he learned to play at the same time, he began to study folk music. He finished elementary school, and his family were finding it difficult to sell milk from the cows on his family's ranch. They moved to Tijuana, where Fernandez worked as a bricklayer, painter, and cabinet maker. During his working day, he sang. So many construction companies asked to have him as a worker. <laughs> okay, singing on the job, huh? Um, after Fernandez finished elementary school with his... Okay, we read that part. He was hired to work as a cashier in his uncle's restaurant. At the age of 14, he started singing in restaurants and at weddings, joining several mariachi groups was then when in Jalisco he participated in the radio program Amanecer Tapatio and began to be recognized locally. At the age of 21, he appeared in his first paid show, Calendaria Musical, married in 1963. His first son, Vicente, who later became a big star, who is currently a big star. Vicente was born premature and had to be incubated at home because he couldn't pay to leave Vicente in the hospital. In 1965, he moved to Mexico City. Didn't have much time because it was the time of Javier Solis, another very famous Mexican cantador. A few days after the premature death of Solis in April 1966, his first offers were for albums. He got offers. And uh, we're going to play Volver, 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 one of his famous hits. Oh, I forgot. We can't play anything.
Volver, volver, volver a tus brazos otra vez.
get a little order back here we're gonna play this one by Vicente
mucha gente y quiero que le escuchen a ver si logré identificarme con ustedes con esta canción a ver si logro que ustedes de alguna manera cuando la escuchen se identifiquen con las gentes que aman, con la gente que quieren simplemente con ustedes mismos de mi maestro también, de Federico Méndez Marioneta Okay, that was uh, Vicente Fernandez set, sort of garbled there. I finally got it together. Uh, this latest one was Marioneta, and this is a song that personally, for me, introduced me to uh, uh, Vicente Fernandez <clears throat> and uh, the phenomenon that is and was Vicente Fernandez. Marioneta, a puppet, talking about his alma muerta, his dead soul. 
even though he gets out and sings every night and looks like he's so happy. The marioneta. For that hijo del pueblo, hijo del pueblo, the, the son of the people. Uh, Fernandez always identified very strongly with Jalisco and the whole charro tradition. Most of his appearances were with charro clothing and outfits. And before that, Tony Bennett singing with Vicente Fernandez, singing Return to Me. Okay, like I say, we're having some problem with our sound here today, so if we're coming in too soft, just know that I've got everything turned up all the way. Trying to make it work through the computer, but it's not working. Um, let's go to uh, Radio Labor now, our worldwide labor news and support site for Okay. 
week, our top stories section included links to coverage of why the Philippines is a focus for the global labor movement, Global Union Federation Education International's push to free Iranian teachers, union activists, and a victory for trade unions as the United Nations refuses to recognize the military as the legitimate government of Myanmar. Our favorite top story of this week was the decision by the United States National Labor Relations Board to order a new vote at the Amazon facility in Alabama after it found that the corporation had engaged in illegal actions during a recent unionization vote. We also carried stories about a new ruling banning online scab activities in the Canadian province of Quebec a draft European Union regulation that would make platform workers clearly employees in law, and the fallout from the victory Indonesian unions recently won when they turned back a neoliberal rewriting of the country's labor laws.
For our Working Women page, our volunteers found stories about the threatened strike by 15,000 workers, almost all of them women, in Australian care homes and why their gender is an issue in the dispute. We also had reports on how South African unions are honoring the call for 16 days of activism and why the new labor relations regime in New Zealand will help move women workers there closer to pay equity. A small sample of the stories appearing on our health and safety page in Newswire this week includes calls from unions in several countries, including the United Kingdom and France, for action by governments to keep schools safe for students and staff as COVID infection numbers rise sharply. We also had a story about an ILO project that is improving industrial accident reporting in Moldova and several analyses of arbitration decisions on the legality of so-called jab or job policies that have been imposed by Canadian employers. Our photo of the week is of members of Global Union Federation Industrials Bangladesh Council's Women's Committee in a protest in Dhaka highlighting the oppression faced by women workers in that country. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is Union Nation with you gotta stand up for your rights. And the bosses keep you down Know you're worth more than you make But there's no more jobs in town Want a union but there's risks Will the others stand as strong Know the bosses shake your fists And they tell you that you're wrong You gotta stand up You gotta stand up You gotta stand up For your rights Stand up, you gotta stand up, you gotta stand up for your rights. Well, you gotta sign this card before anything gets done. The fight is long and it will be hard, but the race is worth the run. Well, back those bosses to the wall till there's no place left to hide. You gotta stand up. You gotta stand up, you gotta stand up for your rights. Taking all that you're gonna take and the bosses keep you down. You know you're worth more than you make, but there's no more jobs in town. You want a union, but there's risk, well the others stand as strong. You gotta stand up. And that's it. Labor news you can use. You can listen to our daily newscasts and features at radiolabor.net. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. That was our monthly, weekly uh, 
connection for labor news from all over the world. Um, look at the Labor Start website, and you can see actions. You can get involved in actions. You can write letters. You can send emails that will help the cause of working people all over the world. And have a look at how the mighty culinary union, not do that one yet. The striking Kellogg worker, let's start with him. Okay, striking Kellogg workers win tentative contract. Remember, they had been offered a contract and had turned it down because it <clears throat> contained some serious two-tier action. A two-tier contract is when usually newer, less experienced workers start at low wages, lower than than the workers who preceded them. So it's basically, we'll pay you $6 an hour and we'll pay you 10 because you've been here for a while. And of course, the point of it all is to winnow out all those who are making good wages and bring in a lower wage scale for the new workers. It's on Democracy Now!, the union representing 1,400 Kellogg's workers has re reached a tentative agreement with the cereal giant on a new five-year contract. If approved by workers during a weekend vote, the deal will end a more than two-month strike at four Kellogg's plants. A previous tentative agreement that would have bought 3% raises was rejected by an overwhelming majority of workers. In Massachusetts, workers at two Boston-area Starbucks have announced a unionization effort. Their campaign comes after workers at a Buffalo Starbucks location voted last week to form the first U.S.-based union of the coffee mega-giant, mega-chain, Medicaid, whatever they call themselves. In Los Angeles County, workers at a cake factory that produces desert desserts for chain stores, including Walmart and Baskin Robbins, are on day 45 of a strike demanding better working conditions. Mostly Latinx immigrant workers say they are forced to work up to 15 hours a day and have to produce 13 cakes per minute. They're granted three sick days a year. Hello? Three sick days a year. And we have some local news along those lines. The headline in El Tecolote, the mission community newspaper, bilingual. Pick it up. It's all over the all over the area. 
In historic wind, San Francisco domestic workers now have access to paid sick leave. Paid sick leave. Hey, this is uh, what year? 2021, almost 22. Workers in the U.S. don't have paid sick leave well. Now domestic workers in San Francisco do. San Francisco, and here's how it goes. It's by Johanna Ochoa. San Francisco domestic workers who shoulder the responsibility of handling some of the most basic and necessary needs for those who require the most help will finally have equal access to paid sick leave. This passed recently by an 8-3 to three vote in the Board of Supervisors. Supervisor Ronan, who sponsored the bill, says domestic workers are the backbone of our community and they make our city run. Ah, okay. Oh, yeah, they make the city run. Here's how they're treated. One day I felt very bad, says Wendy Garcia, a Salvadorian house cleaner in San Francisco. I was not able to go to work. I talked to my employer to see if I could take the day off and go to the doctor, and she automatically rejected me. She fired me. After that, I went to the doctor and found out that I was pregnant. So I found myself in a situation of unemployment and pregnancy. Being pregnant with another child at home, Garcia had to go to work. Sometimes I felt down, but I did, but I had to go. And in some extreme cases, I did not go. But since I didn't know about paid sick leave, they didn't pay me. So the way it's going to work is this. They'll take money out of your paycheck, a certain amount, and that money will be deposited in a... Uh, in a fund and you will be allowed to spend that money on on sick days so you're still paying for it okay but it is a paid sick day and it will the employers will have to come up with some money to support it so it's not like they're getting away with anything huh Home care workers protest 24-hour work day in New York City. Here's a related story. Okay, now who are these people? These are the people, sometimes called the invisible people, because they do the chores around your house. They take care of the elderly and the sick and the incontinent and the people with Alzheimer's. They come into your house and they work. Workers rallied to demand unpaid wages from the United Jewish Council Home Care Agency and an end to the 24-hour workday. Workers employed with the United Jewish Council, UJC, Home Care Agency, rallied to end the 24-hour workday and demand their stolen wages on the morning of December 16th. This was Thursday. 
Home care workers in New York are being forced to work 24-hour shifts for poverty wages. 11 hours of that pay is stolen by their employers, so half the money they work, they work for and earn gets paid to the company. 13 out of 24 hours. Hello? How did we get this, huh? This is a surplus value, Marxist. There's another indication of it. These people work 24-hour shifts. They sleep at the house where they work. 11 hours of their pay is taken. So that's profit to the company, by the employ to the employer. The other 13, 24, 13 hours worth goes to the worker. And what does the company do for that? Is it something that the workers could do themselves if they would hire some administrators? I am traumatized from working 24-hour shifts, said Epiphania. Hs was worked at the UJC for 11 years. Working 24 hours destroys your life. You lose everything, especially your health. You lose your family also. She described how working these long hours can be deadly. Years of 24-hour shifts killed my friend Ramona. That's why I say we must end this racist violence of 24 hours. Our lives matter. Boy, she hit it right on the head. A 24-hour shift is violence against the worker. UJC thinks that people don't care what happens to these home care workers, but today there's been such an outpour of support from the community. Vicky, an organizer with Ain't I a Woman campaign, told Monica Cruz. 24-hour day. According to the organizer, UJC has done everything in their power to continue this violent practice. We sent them letters that they've ignored. They've intimidated workers, and even before this action, they were tearing down our posters. And to us, this shows that they're scared because they know that the violence of the 24-hour shift is unacceptable. filed a um, class action suit in 2016 for unpaid wages. Regardless of the back and forth in the court, the law is on the employer's side. New York State labor law currently allows health home care workers to work 24-hour shifts while being only paid for 13. Ah. <sighs> More than one in seven low-wage workers in New York City is a home care worker. Well, home care workers are the ones who take care of our sick and elderly. They deserve to be paid well and not overworked. Imagine. Okay, let's see what we got here.
Okay, so that was a video of their uh, of their action. Um, labor activists, here's in these times. Later, act, labor activists want to know why workers were left to die in extreme tornadoes. You probably heard the story about the candle factory, the Mayfield Candle Factory in uh, Kentucky. In the aftermath of a rare string of December tornadoes last Friday night that left 80 people dead across six states, labor activists are questioning why employees at two large work sites in the path of destruction were left exposed to danger. Candle Factory in Mayfield, Kentucky was totally destroyed after sustaining a direct tornado hit with 110 workers inside. Same time, an Amazon delivery station in Edwardsville, Illinois, was also hit by a tornado during a shift change, causing the roof to fly off and part of an exterior wall to collapse, killing six, six workers raging in ranging in ages from 26 to 62. As search and rescue teams sifted through the rubble the next morning, Amazon founder and world's second richest person, Jeff Bezos, was celebrating another successful rocket launch by his private spaceflight company, Blue Origin. Meanwhile, Amazon was unable to say for sure how many of its workers were trapped inside. Amazon has faced repeated criticisms for expecting employees to continue coming in to work even in the midst of extreme weather events like deadly heat waves and floods, illustrating how many of the same frontline workers bore the brunt of COVID-19. So workers at the Kendall factory uh, site got tornado warnings between 806 and 816 and site leaders directed people on the site to immediately take shelter. At 827 the tornado struck the building. Larry Virden, an Amazon driver and father of four, told his girlfriend in a text message shortly before the tornado that Amazon won't let me leave. He died in the disaster. Well, are we surprised by this? No. We're not surprised by it. Here's a story of a union in Las Vegas that was able to weather the worst of the COVID epidemic actions. Of course, you know the COVID's not over. <laughs> it's not over. Uh, 100, 100, 200,000 people a day are, ca are new cases for the COVID. 
Over a thousand a day are dying of it. How the mighty culinary union survived the apocalypse. After facing 98% unemployment in the depths of the pandemic, the strongest union in Las Vegas has risen again. It was a week before Halloween on the Las Vegas Strip, and there was a big party that already had begun. Cones were carefully laid down, shutting down three of the six lanes on Las Vegas Boulevard. Flatbed truck served as an improvised stage. Speakers blasted the song, We Are Family, and from all directions, people in red shirts trickled in. Two women in matching fishnet stockings and leather bikinis stopped accosting tourists for photos and tips for a moment and wandered over to take in the scene. What's going on here? One said nervously, fingering her riding crop. Are the cops going to break this up? Her concern was misplaced. This was the most wholesome thing happening on the Strip. It was not debauchery, but a celebration. All these people in red comeback stronger t-shirts were room cleaners, bartenders, bellhops, and other workers in the casinos that dominate the skyline. They had seen this strip deserted not long ago. Now they'd come to rally in a town once again full of gaudy life. Past year and a half had been very, very hard, but the mighty culinary union survived. Building an organization of more than 60,000 hospitality workers in Nevada. Today it's more than a union, a full-service social service and political operation with unparalleled efficiency in using labor power to create sustainable middle-class lives for workers who would otherwise face low wages. It's become the state's strongest political force pushing bread-and-butter progressive issues that help working people. In March 2020, the whole town shut, shut down like everybody else. Her company, Rocha, is the lady's name, culinary union worker, the utility porter, the Strat, a large hotel. Company told its employees that some of them would be laid off. Three days later, it said that actually everyone would be laid off. The entire casino was shut down. I remember it had a big highway and they started shutting the lights one by one, she says. It was really depressing and scary. <clears throat> so what did the union do? 98% of its members became unemployed. Okay. In face of all that, and with its own offices shut down, its finances in peril, the union got to work. 
launched a free food distribution that has to date given out more than 475,000 baskets of food to members. Beans, rice, rice, chicken, fruit. The program's peak, 1,800 people were coming to pick up food each day. A massive campaign to help members file for unemployment benefits developed its own online tools to better navigate the creaky state website. Healthcare was an equally pressing matter. The union has its own health fund which provides health care to all members and their families. More than 130,000 people. When everyone was laid off, the union guaranteed that its members would keep their health care coverage for 18 months. That meant that, unlike most every non-union laid-off worker in America, culinary union workers could be sure they wouldn't have their employer-provided health insurance snatched away right in the middle of a global health crisis. 1,500 members of the union have been hospitalized with COVID. Housing was another concern. Casino workers, like everyone else, were at risk of eviction when their incomes dried up. Sean Best from The Cosmopolitan did get evicted when he couldn't pay his rent. He found himself living in money from Rental assistance from Ulan. He was living in a hotel, a labor affiliated nonprofit. The union told me to contact the attorney general, and they got back to me in the place. And they got me back in the place, and they paid the back rent. This sojourn at the hotel lasted only two weeks. Without the union, I would have been hopeless. I would have not had health care. Honestly, and I know this sounds extreme, I might have been dead. Besides, without health care, I wouldn't have had insulin, wouldn't have had emergency health care. Amid all this, the Culinary Union didn't stop organizing. Since the start of the pandemic, it has successfully unionized the Circa Resort and Casino and the city's new Isla Giant Stadium, adding 3,400 new members. The Culinary Union in Las Vegas is the safety net for its members, as every union should be. Let unions organize. Okay, we're at 11.14 in... Um, we haven't played enough music. Okay. Violetta Para.
with Count Basie's recording of the one o'clock jump. Hop to it, Count. to tell you what's wrong and what's right but when asked about something to eat uh, they will answer in voices so sweet you will eat you will eat by and by in that glorious land in the sky way up high work and pray live on hay uh, you get by in the sky when you 
die, that's a lie. The starvation army they play, and they shout and they clap and they pray. Uh, when they got all your coins on the drum, uh, they will tell you when you're on the bomb. You will eat, you will eat by and by in that glorious land in the sky where I work and pray, but live on hay. Uh, you'll get by in the sky when you die. That's why holy rollers and jumpers come out and they roll. And they jump and they shout I give your money to Jesus, they say And you lead on that glorious day You will eat, you lead by and by In that glorious land in the sky Where I work and pray I Live on hay You get by in the sky when you die That's right, working folks of all Side by side, we for freedom will fight. Uh, when this world and its wealth we have gained, uh, after the crackers will sing this refrain. You and me, by and by, uh, when you learn how to cook and how to fry, uh, chop some wood, do you good. The intellectual elite. Intellectual elite. Intellectual elite. The intellectual elite. Know-it-all, academic, soy latte, vegan, complete the Saturday New York Times crossword puzzle, coastal, kale, 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 intellectual elite. Why is intellectualism always equated with elitism? Maybe because in a time when facts don't matter and authority gets its strength from blind trust, knowledge isn't power, it's a problem. Maybe it's our puritanical roots, or maybe it's Fraser Crane. But Americans don't like intellectuals. That's why in American politics, not knowing much or appearing like you don't can be seen as a virtue. It shows that a politician is down to earth, relatable, someone you could have a beer with, or five beers with, or however many you had before you passed out and they drew a wang on your forehead.
Anti-intellectualism is what made someone from one of the most elite families who graduated from one of the most elite universities appear to be of the people. To those of you who received honors, awards, and distinctions, I say well done. And to the C students, you too can be president of the United States. And then one day a war criminal. And of course, back then, no one could have imagined a more grotesque celebration of hawkish anti-intellectualism until the primaries of 2016. We won with young, we won with old, we won with highly educated, we won with poorly educated, I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people, we're the most loyal people. And that's just it. Trump loves the poorly educated because they're loyal, just like peasants or beagles or Eric. They don't know any better. The less educated you are, the less capacity you have to think for yourself. And the less capacity to think for yourself, the easier it is to blindly place your trust in authority. And Trump was right to love the poorly educated because he went on to win the election, in large part thanks to voters without a college education. He vastly outperformed Clinton in the 50 least educated counties in the country, where people might not have minded a president who literally speaks at a fourth grade level. Trump's lack of adult vocabulary, or coherence, is part of the Republican brand, though, to distance themselves from the elite classes they are indeed a part of in order to gain the trust of the general public, who they ultimately plan to f over. And it's been happening for decades. This is the issue of this election. Whether we believe in our capacity for self-government or whether we abandon the American Revolution and confess that a little intellectual elite in a far distant capital can plan our lives for us better than we can plan them ourselves. Yeah, don't trust anyone who knows what they're doing. Trust the guy from Bedtime for Bonzo, whose brilliant economic plan is just his name with nomics on the end. And hear how Paul Ryan peddles the same anti-intellectualism today. We do not believe that we should be governed by elites. We do not believe that there are experts or elites who should steer us in their preferred direction. Mm. So good to hear you support regular folks, Paul. I'm sure the Medicare for All iron worker Randy Bryce will appreciate your endorsement for Wisconsin's first district. Oh, hey, isn't that your district? One way the right equates expert knowledge with elitism is by painting higher education as the enemy. President Obama once said he wants everybody in America to go to college. What a snob. Next, he'll want us all to have health care. And some of us don't want to have to wait 50 years to meet Jesus. But it's easy for the right to demonize higher education as elitist because college itself is so inaccessible. And instead of working to make it more accessible by lowering tuition and alleviating student debt, right-wingers make education even more expensive by gutting public schools in favor of expensive private ones. It's almost as if it's in some people's political interest to keep people poorly educated. I just described Betsy DeVos's job. Meanwhile, the GOP continues to parrot down-home, working-class solidarity, which is mostly crap. For instance, that lunch that Santorum was speaking at was for Americans for Prosperity, the nonprofit group of libertarian Sith Lord billionaires, the Koch brothers, a group that regularly supports union busing and is vehemently against raising the minimum wage. Mmm, feel the solidarity. But please, go on, Rick. They're good, decent men and women who go out and work hard every day and put their skills to test that aren't taught by some liberal college professor and trying to indoctrinate them. And that, right there, is the second prong to the right's anti-intellectualism, painting higher education not just as elitist, but liberal.
Many universities are becoming bastions of liberal bias rather than institutions for higher learning. There's a bias in favor of liberal points of view on campuses that are run by government. It's a joke that these elite universities claim to be bastions of academic freedom when really they're only bastions of political correctness. Yeah. To the right, universities are bastions of political correctness because there are lessons on the French Revolution, gender studies, and consent. So it's no wonder that after all this bashing of college, one out of three Americans now thinks that higher education does more harm than good. Also, one in four Americans believes the sun revolves around the earth, which probably means two out of three Americans think college gives you skin cancer. And it is true that adults that are more highly educated have more so-called liberal thoughts on social issues and the environment. Things like climate change is real and universal health care will help people and other ideological nonsense, also known as facts. But the right combats these realities taught in universities by dismissing them all as simply overly sensitive political correctness that discriminates against conservative viewpoints. Take Charlie Kirk. This 24-year-old runs a group called Turning Point USA that professes so-called free speech on college campuses by, say, keeping a menacing list of liberal professors on its website. Listen to Kirk justify his campus crusade. Look, a university is supposed to be a place where disagreement, the free flow of ideas happen, right. where people can say, I, I respect your opinion, but I respectfully disagree. Universities are no longer those places. Time out. Charlie Kirk never actually went to college. Uh, why would he? He's on Fox. Time in. They are really islands of totalitarianism, where if you disagree with the faculty, the professors, the administration, or the left-wing students on campus, you can't respectfully disagree. You will be silenced, you will be suppressed, and you will be called a racist. Or, Charlie, you will be called a racist because it turns out your organization is pretty f***ing racist. The thing is, Turning Point USA does exactly what Kirk imagines liberal universities are doing propaganda. He admits to taking money from fossil fuel interests and then working against fossil fuel divestment campaigns. In fact, the right as a whole has had a way bigger hand in university education than they let on. Since the 60s, right-wing think tanks and private family foundations have poured billions into universities to promote free market thinking. There's the Olin Foundation, which started the conservative Madison program at Princeton and has supported right-wing ideologues from Samuel, Muslims Can't Do Democracy, Huntington, to Dinesh, Welfare is slavery D'Souza, or the Bradley Foundation and its support of gutting Wisconsin's education budget. But please, please, Charlie, tell me about liberal totalitarianism. For decades, one percenters have worked hard to correct the liberal bias that comes with more knowledge, because they know that higher learning has been linked to beliefs in things like democracy, equality, deductive reasoning, and other stuff that makes you look at the Republican tax plan and go, Wait a minute. They hate that higher education, despite their best efforts, does not turn you into a mindless worker bee with a malleable brain and nimble fingers with which to assemble the robots that are eventually gonna take your job assembling robots until one day you wake up and go, hey, how come all the immigrants are taking my robot assembling robots jobs? Now listen. Call me a New York Times crossword puzzle, soy, kale, coastal, Fraser, kale, elitist intellectual if you want. All I have is a bachelor's degree, a bunch of books I haven't read on my shelf, and my spirit animal is Cardi B. It doesn't take a genius to realize that the plan to simultaneously defund and then delegitimize education is a way to keep us all very dumb. To keep us shopping on credit, blaming immigrants, and hailing the biggest anti-intellectual of them all. So maybe stay in school and stay woke. Can I still say woke in 2018?
Hey everyone, thanks for watching Newsbroke. I'm Francesca Fiorentini. Please follow me on Twitter and let us know what you think about this allergy to intellectualism that Americans often have. Where does it come from? And, and how does it play out in your life and maybe in college? Are, are you in school or not? Also, why is it that people who have a college education are automatically pitted against people who don't have a college education? Shouldn't we just help everyone and actually, you know, raise the minimum wage? make sure that college-educated people aren't just baristas, not that there's anything wrong with being a barista. I don't know. Let me know in the comments, and thanks for watching. Francesca Fiorentini there, talking about anti-intellectualism in American life. <clears throat> um, And it's playing out now in a deadly way because anti-intellectualism is kind of identified now with anti-vape, anti-vac, pardon me, not anti-vape, anti-vac, that <clears throat> if you trust the medical establishment, these people are just a bunch of out-of-touch intellectuals, you know, learned people, and they'll kill you. They'll lead you into death. Now, I know a whole lot of people who don't necessarily believe that type of thing, but who, in the, in the case of the COVID, really do. Okay, let's see what we got here. Twenty twenty one year in review. The only way out is through. Twenty twenty one reminds me of a riddle, writes Alexandra Blatt Bradbury on Labor Notes. What's worse than finding a worm in your apple? finding half a worm in your apple. What's scary, scarier than a year of pandemic, a second year of pandemic? Especially private sector workers in various industries, union and non-union, animated by a fresh sense of confidence, defiance, and being just plain fed up, Results give us genuine cause for optimism, including major turning points in union reform and a bumper crop of strikes. By the numbers, 2021 had nothing on any year from the 1930s through the 1980s. Some Workers were buoyed by a new spirit. Plenty more were beaten down and demoralized. Okay, let's look at some of the highlights. Teamsters at the Hunts Point Produce Market in the Bronx started the year with a bang, a six-day strike that doubled their raise. But the spring's biggest labor story was a defeat, the union drive at an Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama. Aside from Amazon's tampering with a ballot drop box, which was severe enough that the Labor Board has ordered a new election 
Its tactics were as appalling as they were typical. Two of the longest strikes of the year kicked off in March and April, each featuring workers squaring off against soulless capitalist giants. St. Vincent Nurses in Massachusetts versus Tenet, one of the largest for-profit hospital chains and warrior met coal miners in Alabama versus a clique of hedge funds. Both strikes are still on. Police officer in the Twin Cities killed a young man named Dante Wright, sparking the latest round of protest against the wanton destruction of black lives. Twin Cities labor activists mobilized fast to kick the National Guard out of a Labor Federation hall. Strikes started heating up when members of the bakery union struck at Frito-Lay and Nabisco. Okay, so check it out. It's on Labor Notes. And it's by Alexandra Bradbury, and she goes through the year and looks back on the main union actions, organizing actions of the year. Only 11% of workers have the protection of the union, and that includes a lot of ho-hum unions. Only a handful have been through workplace collective action, which can crack open your sense of what's possible. Here's hoping this year's ripple of militancy is followed by a much bigger wave. We're going to need all the power we can muster. Employers can and do get away with almost anything. They can threaten to permanently replace strikers to close the plant and move away. And they sometimes follow through on those threats. Workers and unions, meanwhile, are hemmed in by legal limits on when and how we can strike and stiff penalties for breaking them. Not to mention all the other forces that hem us in, like fear, division, confusion, and hopelessness. So here's to a better 2022. How about labor history in two minutes? December 16th. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1951. That was the day New York City was struck by the Great Bagel Famine. 300 members across 32 bakeries of the Bagel Bakers of America Local 338 walked off the job over wages and working conditions. Morris Siegel, business agent for the local, stated that the Bakers Association had been lax in living up to the welfare fund payments and sanitary provisions of the contract. The bagel bakers produced 1.2 million bagels weekly for New York City consumers. The Wisconsin Jewish Chronicle noted, quote, The only ones welcoming this respite are the salmon. Diners, delicatessens, and Teamster delivery drivers were all rocked by the strike, which lasted for six weeks. The two sides were so deadlocked that a mediator who had effectively settled a smoked salmon dispute three years earlier was brought in to help settle the conflict. 
the bagel bakers won a $3 a day wage increase and were ready to return to work. But the Teamsters would not begin deliveries until they were paid for lost wages due to the lack of deliveries made during the strike. The bagel bakers would engage in job actions effectively over the course of the next 15 years until they too suffered the fate of many an industrial worker, that of automation. Their labor would eventually be replaced by labor-saving bagel-making machines by the late 1960s. The Bagel Bakers Local 338 was a union that was based in New York State. And they set the minimum wages of the Yiddish bagel bakeries and controlled all of the stages from the flour sack to the plate. But like the railroad did to the canal. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at laborhistoryin2. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1944. That was the day that President Franklin Delano Roosevelt rescinded Executive Order 9066. It had forcibly relocated over 120,000 Japanese Americans into internment camps. After the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the government considered Japanese Americans a national security threat. By 1942, many were given less than a week's notice to sell and store all property. Whole families were rounded up and taken away to desolate areas in the west and southwest of the United States. Up to this point, many Japanese Americans in California were employed in the agricultural industry, some as tenant farmers. They were responsible for 40% of all produce grown in that state, whose crops were valued at $40 million annually. Over 6,000 farms, consisting of 200,000 acres, were confiscated. Once in turn, they were subjected to dire living conditions with little in the way of running water, sanitary facilities, or medical care. They were subject to forced labor in the construction of camp buildings and cultivation of near-barren lands. The government hoped to make the camps self-sufficient. In Poston, Arizona, they were made to build the infrastructure for Colorado River Tribes Reservation in order to consolidate other tribes onto the land. When Japanese Americans were finally released, most found their stored belongings stolen and their homes, jobs, and farms confiscated and redistributed. After the war, they continued to face violence, job and housing shortages, and racial discrimination. Ronald Reagan would sign the Civil Liberties Act in 1988. It acknowledged that internment was based on, quote, race prejudice, war hysteria, and a failure of political leadership. The act served as a formal apology and sought to distribute billions in reparations. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1917. That was the day that Congress passed the 18th Amendment, which outlawed the transportation, manufacture, and sale of alcohol. The amendment went into effect 13 months later. According to John Rumbarger, author of Profits, Power, and Prohibition, the temperance movement centered on tightening social control of working people. Workers often met in bars and saloons to unwind after work and to socialize. But in the days before union halls, the saloon also doubled as a headquarters where workers could talk about problems on the job, like mistreatment and poor working conditions. 
they used the saloon as a place to plan and organize strikes. It also served as a site for workers to talk politics and organize around political parties. Many prominent industrialists complained that saloons were breeding grounds for labor unrest and radical politics. They also feared a growing immigrant working class that tied its fate to powerful political machines like those in Chicago, New York, and Boston. The anti-saloon movement brought a strange mix into its coalition. It included the KKK, who worried of the growing power of immigrant workers. But it also included progressives, who worked for labor harmony and sobriety as a means of public health. The anti-saloon movement also targeted German brewers. The United States had just entered World War I, and anti-German sentiment was so high that many considered German breweries to be working for the Kaiser, their product a sap on the energy of servicemen and grain production to feed the U.S. troops. But alcohol flowed freely throughout the 1920s, creating both the jazz speakeasy and bootlegging syndicates. It would ultimately be repealed by 1933. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. Okay, Rick Smith with his uh, Labor History in Two Minutes. Three chapters of it there. And let's find our troubadour, the Japanese jazz guitarist Kaori Miraji. Take us out. See you next week on Christmas. Remember, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table where you work, you're on the menu. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's only a waste of time. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Have a good week and good work.
Thank <laughs> you. 